You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about two thousand cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail Drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks, throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, 
Colorado for episode 681 of this podcast. Today is Monday, August 7th, 2023. And that was a reading of Joshua chapter 3 in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 3, Israel crosses the Jordan. And if you believe it, the waters of the Jordan stand still, part, back up, very reminiscent of Moses parting the Red Sea, God parting the Red Sea for Israel to pass over to escape Pharaoh as Pharaoh with his chariots, with his army, was pursuing Israel out of a hardness of heart, opposing God by opposing God's people. If you can believe it, this is a parallel passage. It's a parallel. God is doing a new thing here, but then again, in a certain sense, he's not doing a new thing. Earlier, it was Moses parting the Red Sea, but then in another sense, it was God parting the Red Sea. Both are correct to say, in this case, it's God parting the Jordan like he parted the Red Sea for Israel to pass over and to cross over. And if you can believe it, this really happened. But I want to talk in this episode about superstition. I want to talk about a certain superstitious treatment of miracles that actually works in the opposite direction from what is typically talked about. Now, we typically mean superstition as when somebody is, oh, I don't know, worried about bad luck if they break a mirror or if they walk under a ladder, things like that. Old wives' tales, oh, you don't want to do that because you might have bad luck or you might be cursed or whatever, right? There are some people who believe that everything is supernatural and therefore nothing is supernatural, but then there are people who insist stubbornly that nothing exists except the material world that we can see, touch, taste, feel, hear with our natural senses. And that latter category of people I want to address, that latter category actually, ironically, is superstitious after a fashion with regards to anything that would be miraculous, anything that would be wondrous, anything that would actually suspend the normal courses of the natural laws, the physical laws. When we study physics, when we study chemistry, when we study all kinds of things that make up the physical sciences, if we do not leave room for God to intervene and to act, one, that is a rejection of what the Bible tells us about God and tells us about our own history. But then for two, for another thing, on the other hand, it can lead to if that is the consensus of the respectable people, if that's the consensus of the scientific establishment, it can lead us to being very wary or very nervous, very anxious, very uncomfortable, very cynical. Anytime we hear something that we can't explain with only natural, unguided processes, the physical laws of the universe, if we can't explain this or that with a nod to a kind of deistic view of the universe, there are some of us who 
get very hyperbolic and just shut down, right? We shut down. In fact, there's quite a lot of us that are that way. And I believe this is explainable why so many of us are that way, why we are so cynical, why we are so almost allergic to all talk of the supernatural or miracles, signs, wonders. I believe there are several explanations for this, but also at the same time, there's no excuse for it for the Christian. Let's start with the explanations and then we'll proceed on to the reason I say that this is not excusable. First up, you have the public education system in the United States. The official position of our public education system is materialism. It is determinism after a fashion, but it is materialistic and godless. When our public education system approaches the question of where did we come from? How did we get here? How did human beings and all the animals and the birds and the things that are in the waters, how did all the bugs and the creepy crawlies and the plants get here? How is it that the world is able to support life at all? The official position of the public schools is godless, as in there is no room for theism generally to be part of the explanation, but also more to the point, there is no room for the God of the Bible to be the original uncaused cause. And as such, if God is not the one who created, then he is also not the one who rules and reigns. And if he's not the one who created in the beginning, and he's not the one who rules and reigns, then you're not accountable to him at all for anything. And then, oh, by the way, anytime you would hear about or read about miracles, you should probably just dismiss all of the above as so much nonsense. Primitive, backwards, nonsense. That's the official pedagogy of our public schools. And according to the best stats that I can find when I Google it, when I ask ChatGPT, 90% of American children of school age attend the public schools. And that's been a higher percentage in previous decades ever since compulsory government schooling became also the policy of our government here in the United States. Around about a century ago, the progressives decided this was how they were going to make people not just capable of reading and writing and doing math, but this is how they were going to make good citizens. And their definition of a good citizen is a progressive definition because they are progressives. And so, no, they're not especially concerned with conserving Christian faith. And gradually over the decades, they weeded it out. And in some small pockets here and there, you may find that a teacher is able to talk about their Christian faith and say, well, this is what the Bible says, and that's what I believe. And let's talk about some of the questions surrounding Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. Let's talk about some of the problems with dating the earth and the universe as so old and originating from a big bang. And what caused the big bang? Did you even think to ask that question if you were only listening to the evangelists of atheism? But by and large, 
the vast majority of successive generations, several successive generations of Americans have been taught a godless cosmology. And insofar as the bulk of their instruction, eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, depending on if they're well-behaved or not, maybe also through the summer and on the weekends here and there, but eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, from kindergarten through 12th grade, the lion's share of the instruction and discipling is a progressive discipling and a dis- a discipleship in progressivism, quite simply. That progressivism requires on a very foundational level that the charges in order to be good progressives have to progress past the old Christian paradigms, the old Christian social imaginary, which asked in every question, even if the answers weren't accurate, but asked in every situation, what would please God? The progressives would say we have to evolve past that. But also at the same time, the progressives, you have to understand, were heavily bankrolled, very much supported by, funded by, helped and assisted by and spurred on by behind the scenes, very wealthy social Darwinists who had every incentive personally to promulgate this view of the world because it was the most flattering of all possible explanations for why they had become so wealthy. And also it was the most permissive worldview as to what they might do with their accumulated wealth and power. But also too, alongside all this, another explanation for why we are so cynical about the supernatural or about what God might do or about metaphysical claims that are theistic and Christian in nature. Another explanation is that these very wealthy men in part became so wealthy through industrialization and efficiencies that were gained through the development of better manufacturing technologies. Our science, from a physical science standpoint, our science has advanced. And so there are more phenomena which we can examine in more ways and describe in more detail. And as we have more knowledge, we are more puffed up and we believe more and more of us, we don't need to reach for God as an explanation for anything. If we can explain this or that phenomena with references to observed processes, again, that we can quantify, that we can measure, that we can duplicate or replicate through experimentation, then we say we have no need of God. We have no need of God to explain what it is that we're seeing. And therefore also, this is the quiet part out loud that I'm about to say, therefore also, we have no special need to submit to God or to obey God as to what we do moving forward. When it was the case that we said, God is the one who made the universe and he rules and reigns over it and he owns it, right? Because he made it, he also has the first claim on what we do with it. And as we are part of this universe, what we do with ourselves, what we do with one another, that is a subset of what God owns, 
It's a part of what God owns because we're part of the universe. When you get away from God having created the universe in the first place, you also, very conveniently to some, get away from having to respect God, having to fear God, having to obey God, having to trust God. But then this produces a conflict for the Christian in particular. If the Christian comes to his Bible and he says, no, I believe that this is what happened. I believe in Joshua chapter 3, for instance, that exactly what it's describing occurred exactly as it says here, and maybe there was more to it, sure. Not every detail is presented to us, but we have the details we need. I believe that's what happened. Now we have a difficulty because the most academic teachers may be conservatives we've never heard of, or as is more probable thanks to the corporate media and the consensus among the very wealthy, typically being scientific and godless, the Bible teachers we have heard of probably are going to be liberals, and they're probably going to be coming from a progressive, materialistic, scientistic, not scientific, but scientistic, positivistic point of reference. And when they come to passages like this, they'll explain these passages either A, as entirely symbolic, that didn't really happen. No, you can't believe that. But what this is really about is a metaphor for the soul, for the human mind, for the human heart. That's what is going on here. And you can't see this as being actually literally true, as we would typically mean literally. And so then we have a further difficulty because the folks who approach the biblical text with a simple faith and say, I believe it. I don't know how that works, but I believe that that's true. Very quickly, they're confronted even within the context of the American church. They're confronted with biblical teachers and scholars who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Actually, they spend their whole lives long studying the Bible, but they don't believe that any of it is true literally. They believe that it's true in a psychological way, like a kind of wish fulfillment. But then if that's what it is, honestly, what leg do those kinds of people have to stand on to push back on, let's say, the campaign to trans the kids or to have drag queens performing for young children? Or what leg do they have to stand on? How do they object on what basis do they object if the state of California's legislature just relaxed penalties for pedophiles? As long as the child is willing, the pedophiles now will face lower penalties, less criminal penalties, if the child was willing in the state of California. What leg do we have to stand on if we have picked and chosen what Christianity means to us instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Again, I say these are explanations. It's an explanation that the public schools teach de facto atheism, atheism by default. Claiming to be neutral with regards to religion, they are actually teaching atheism. That's an explanation. It's not an excuse that there are very wealthy people who own corporations and they own media companies, big tech, social media companies, and also more conventional, traditional 
corporate news media companies, those people by and large maintain also de facto atheism or at best a kind of deism, really. We believe that God wound up the universe like a clock and then let it do its thing, if we believe that God was involved at all. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's basically an altar to an unknown God, which we have no excuse to build when we have the Bible. We have God's word. He's revealed himself. He has expressed himself. He's made himself known in his word. We have no excuse for building altars to unknown gods, because essentially what that is, is it's not you didn't know, it's that you rejected. You chose to disbelieve. You do not believe what God has said about himself, which is to say you are, in some sense, claiming that you know better than God where he came from, what he's done, what he's been about. But then that's another explanation here, that there's a form of godliness in American society for some time now, which prefers an abstract God over the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. For some time, when there is civic religion, when there is an expression of anything approaching theism in the public square, the preference is for the unknown God, the God in the abstract, who we can describe any way we like, and there is no objective standard to measure our truth claims about him against to see whether they are in fact true. And what's ironic is, as much as that bothers us, as much as we object to that, there's actually a kind of superstition with regards to countering it. If you would do more than just grumble and complain about it, there's a kind of superstition when it comes to saying that's wrong and here's why that's wrong. Many people are superstitious about contradicting that de facto atheism or that de facto deism. They're superstitious about it because what's going to happen if you object, if you complain, if you argue, if you debate, if you push back, if you correct, what's going to happen? All of the people who were brought up to believe that the progressive view of a good citizen is the correct one are going to say, you're not being a good citizen. When you push back, when you say, ah, that's not correct, it is written. They're going to say you're on the wrong side of history. And then what happens from there is petty little comeuppance here and there when you least expect it, little reprisals where the folks who don't appreciate you being, as they see it, a bad citizen, but as it really is, a bad progressive. You're not being a progressive. You're being a Christian, perhaps, hopefully, or you're being a conservative, even. The people who issue those petty reprisals, they're doing so because they're trying to actually, in a very Christianized way, but in a godless way, they're trying to get you to let go of what they see as a backwards view, an ignorant, naive, unlearned view, an unsophisticated view. And here's a question. How much of their regarding your taking the Bible as literally true is actually just because they have unconsciously played a positive association game and a negative association game. And what I mean by that is we take the view as credible when the man espousing it has institutional power in the university, for instance, or in the seminary, for instance, or 
in our denomination or network of churches or in our local church. We take his views as credible if he's dressed in a nice expensive suit, if he has a beautiful hardwoods library filled with the attractive folio versions of classic books, if he has a fireplace and a tobacco pipe and some high back leather chairs, we take his view as credible because we have played the positive association game. Unconsciously, we have said, if that kind of a view, the kind of view that he just expressed, if that's associated with prosperity and it would take a good amount of money for you to be able to acquire a library like that or a suit like that or the nice set of classic works of literature and history like that, well, then you've perhaps fallen into a trap because who's to say that that guy acquired those things because he's correct and because he's been blessed by God and who's to say whether he acquired those things because his view, his stance, his position, his influence is very useful to maintaining the status quo. It's a kind of conservatism, but it's conserving actually this theistic, evolutionary, materialistic, positivistic, relativistic, scientistic cosmology and anthropology and, if you can call it that, theology. These are the kinds of questions that very often we don't think about, but we ought to be wise and careful about the optics in our day for those who teach the Bible or explain the Bible. On the other hand, if we see somebody who's taking a more conservative view on what the Bible not just says, because you can read it, but what it means, how we should understand it. Should we take it literally? Should we take it figuratively, symbolically, psychologically only? If the one telling you, you should say all of the above, like myself, is dressed in shabby clothes and does not have a big, beautiful library. He's got a library filled with used books and he doesn't have the hardwoods. He's got particle board bookshelves and he doesn't have expensive clothes to wear and the leisure time to come to you by way of video. He is just doing the audio in the mornings before he gets started with work for the day. If the guy espousing the conservative view, the historically Christian view of these passages, that they are literally true and also meaningful intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, socially, politically, well, then you can do the exact same kind of association game subconsciously, albeit, but then what are you doing? You're perhaps setting yourself up to reject what is true if somebody who is less well-off is the one expressing it. And you're setting yourself up to potentially believe things that aren't true just because the person who's telling you the untrue things, the not true things, is affluent. And in that case, are you judging with right judgment or are you judging with partiality? And this is why I talk so much about Edward Bernays's propaganda and the work of Saul Alinsky, because those men have such a dominant influence on the way that the truth claims are communicated to us today. We are not typically persuaded. We are typically manipulated. 
And this is not just true among the godless. This is also true among professing Christians that very often the tactics, the means and ways of discipling are either bullying on the one hand or they're manipulative on the other hand instead of being persuasive. There is no expectation of reasonableness and there is therefore no corresponding effort at acquiring either A, the skill to make reasoned arguments, or B, the skill to be able to assess reasoned arguments. And again, I say a lot of this can be explained, not excused, but explained by the kind of education that 90% plus of us have been getting for generations in the United States. We've not been getting a persuasive, rational, reasoned, reasonable, conservative type of education. We've been getting a progressive education. We've been getting an education, most of us, for generations that is patterned off of how Prussians were taught hundreds of years ago. How they were taught came from an educational philosophy that was very content, in fact, aspired to this, that 99 out of 100 of the pupils would end up being for all intents and purposes, slaves to their government, slaves to the state, slavishly obedient in the armies, slavishly obedient in the factories. Why? So that son of the enlightenment, godless Frederick the Great could win wars against neighbors. So he wouldn't have to put up with being cross-examined. As much as I've also talked about the divine right of kings leading to conflict, that view of monarchical power in the British Isles, in the United Kingdom, leading to conflict with Presbyterians in particular, who actually, if you want to think of it this way, it might be helpful, grafted the Highland clan approach to organizing community and society into church polity. But the divine right of king's folks, very typically either the kings themselves, or those who stood to benefit from the king's favor, the divine right of kings folks had their corollaries in the titans of industry, the industrialists who latched on to Darwin's theory. And it's not for no reason that those same folks latched on to the Prussian model of public schooling. Because all of the above promised for them a harmonious society that was progressive and would continue on advancing in every material way. It would be prosperous and strong and efficient and scientific, but also here was the catch. And here's where I say there's no excuse for it. This toxic stew of those influences, historical patterns of thought coming together as much more as they promised technological advancement, economic prosperity, or at least efficiency, obedient armies, what they also guaranteed was less and less fear of God. In case it's not obvious, one of the consequences of God performing these signs and wonders and miracles was that his people would be encouraged to obey him, to follow him. Part of the reason why, again and again, his people are reminded of what he's done 
is so that they will be encouraged to follow after him, to obey him, to trust him, to live for him, to love him, and that they will be blessed as a result. Now, what happens if his people are either caused to forget or the godless deny, as they teach our children, they deny at every turn that God ever did any of these things? Will we not see that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, and that as much as we would have trusted and loved and feared God and obeyed God and been blessed in so doing, now actually it will be worse for us than it was before we heard anything about these stories, to have them explained to us in a way that says, no, God didn't do that. God doesn't do that. He never did that. That was just men making stories up, making things up. It's so important for our own spiritual health, for our own mental and emotional health, that we push back when people want to have a form of godliness but deny its power in passages like Joshua chapter 3. I mean, for one thing, God says he is going to make it clear that Joshua is his man, Joshua is his servant, Joshua is the one to obey. Obey Joshua. What Joshua tells you to do, do it. Why? Because God told you, and you're obeying God when you obey Joshua. Obey Joshua. God himself is going to perform these signs and wonders, not just so that the people will obey God, but so that the people will obey Joshua, and that's what God wants. But then, what also is the enemy's purpose to get you to not believe that God does any such thing? He does not intervene. He wound up the universe like a clock, and then he let it go. He's the divine watchmaker of the deists, if he even exists, they say. And in that case, when you read these passages, you don't just have a question enter into your mind, what should I think about God? Is God real? Does he exist? What does he do? What should I expect from him? Should I trust him? Should I obey him? Should I follow him? Should I listen to him? Should I fear him? Should I love him? Should I ignore him and just get on with my life? do whatever I want to, do whatever I think best. You don't just have those kinds of questions. You also have the same kinds of relationships and cause and effect routines occurring with regards to those authorities God has put in place in your life who God tells you to obey. And so as we have less and less fear of God in society, Go figure, you have less and less respect for fathers and mothers. If God says, obey your father and your mother, but then I don't have to take seriously what God says either, well then, maybe I honor my father and my mother so long as they don't ever tell me no, so long as they give me whatever I want, so long as it's all about me, 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 me. So then you have the collapse of the institution of the family. Wives don't submit to their husbands in that case. Children don't submit to their mother and their father in that case which is part of what Frederick the Great wanted insofar as a long line of philosopher kings and just straight up sophists have said, you have to take children away from their parents in order to bring them up right. And right here can be just whatever you think. He who controls the children controls the future, owns the future. But also in the church, if children are brought up to believe that God never did any of these things. He doesn't do these kinds of things. In fact, he may not even exist. 
This is only useful for what it means to you emotionally, mentally, intellectually, socially. Then why are those children going to grow up to have any respect for whatsoever authority in the church? And so you have the collapse of that sphere of authority as well. And unfortunately, a lot of Bible teachers, a lot of leaders in the church, a lot of pastors, they only start to get engaged really about the collapse of important spheres of authority instituted by God when those spheres are their sphere. And insofar as laymen also have, if they are husbands and fathers, heads of households, they also have a legitimate sphere of authority instituted by God with certain responsibilities and, yes, certain privileges and certain power, certain authority to wield, not just to have, but to use. If those men have given up on there being any consistency whatsoever, and if they themselves have suffered from partiality, being permitted in the church, being rewarded in the church, affirmed, rationalized, spiritualized, then Unfortunately, in far too many cases, just as with the pastors checking out, staying out of all that when it's the collapse of the sphere of authority for the husband and the father, so also those men, those laymen, stand back as there's a collapse of or a demolition of the authority of the church. And actually, I think that the last three years of post-COVID active COVID policy making where churches were told to shut down, pastors were arrested, in many cases threatened, bullied, masks were mandated, vaccines were mandated, or it was attempted, social distancing was enforced. That has woke up a lot of pastors to the need to develop a robust political theology that's informed by God's word. But then again, again, I say there's a superstitious quality to the kind of political theology or the kind of theology more broadly we develop when we come to the biblical text and then come away with conclusions, there's a superstitious quality, not that we're expecting to see the miraculous, the wondrous works of God, but that if we hear about that or if somebody tells us God may move and work mightily and we should trust that he will do what he thinks best, including but not limited to signs and wonders, what is the response? The response is to maintain a status quo that is bankrupt. It's partiality towards those who are affluent, who for several generations have been dominating the discussion, dominating the pedagogy, dominating our political processes, dominating how we, whether we stay informed and up to date on current events that pertain to us. Or as the case may be, If you read Neil Postman, lots of irrelevant stories that give us the illusion of being well-informed, all the while giving us nothing actionable in our area, nothing practical that we could actually go and do something about. But we get the illusion of being informed, and actually all of this feeds all the more into passivity with regards to local business. And that's partly the idea. Diversionary tactics. Oh, what's that over there? What? I don't see anything funny. No matter. Up next, let's get into some current events items. First up, I'll play for you a bit of audio from a video tweeted out by Ian Miles Chung, August 6th, which was just yesterday. 
embedded in a report from Daily Wire News. Here is rapper Neo being interviewed and asked what he thinks with regards to some of the current debate about parents and children and transgenderism. Here it is. Some interesting commentary. Cut one. Take a listen. Parents have almost almost forgotten what the role of a parent is. Amen. It's like, okay, Lost control. if your little boy comes to you and says, Daddy, I want to be a girl, and you just let him rock with that, you just let Right. He's five. Right. And where did he get that if from? If you let this five-year-old boy decide to eat candy all day, he's going to do that. Exactly. Like, when, when did it become a good idea to let a five-year-old, let a six-year-old, let a 12-year-old make a life-changing decision for themselves? Right. When did that happen? Right. Like, I don't, I don't understand that. I, I, I don't get that. Don't and get to that. medicate these young kids that are five, six, growing up and knowing that it, it affects their brain, it affects their organs, it mm-hmm. makes them sick, but they're not allowed to do drugs, they're not allowed to do alcohol. Right. But we can medicate he them. He can't up. drive a car yet, but he can decide his sex. Right, oh, right. what sex orientation, and he can cut up his pee-pee, and, and that, to me, that makes no sense whatsoever. And it's, I, so I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a rumor that they, they, they either passed or are trying to pass a law in L.A. that states, if your child comes to you and asks to do some of these things and you say no, they can take your kid from yeah, you. Yeah, that's true just passed in California. That does that makes no sense. They want us to have no control over our children. I don't, I don't get it. In schools. I don't get it. Hospitals, libraries. Yeah. They just want to manipulate. You got to understand when they're so young and they're already... That's, Impressionable. That's right. Mm-hmm. And from them, they're going to believe what you say. I mean, yeah. we say Santa Claus is real. You know, the Easter Bunny. And they Bunny. believe it. Like, right, exactly. Like, they know what they're doing. Remember who you're dealing with. Like, I, I don't, I, I can't take credit for it, but it, I heard somebody say one time, he's like, all right, if your son comes to you and says, Daddy, I want to be a girl. Ask your son, son, what is a girl? Mm, that's a good one. What is he going to do? He's going to say, uh, well, he might, he might want to play with dolls. All right, you want to play with dolls. Fine, play with dolls. Right. But you're a boy. Right. Playing with dolls. That's right. I want to wear pink. All right, cool. Wear pink, but you're a boy. That's right. Wearing pink. No oh. issue with, with the LBG. I have no problem with none of it, with nobody. Okay? Right. Love who you love, do what you do. Exactly. I just personally come from an era where a man was a man and a woman was a woman, and it wasn't but two genders, and that's just how I rocked. Me now, too. It, 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 you, could, you could identify as a goldfish if you feel like Right. It. I, <laughs> I agree. Care. That ain't my business. Just, it becomes my business when you try to make me play the game with you. I'm not going right. to call you a goldfish, but exactly. you, if you want to be a goldfish, you go be a goldfish. It's all Amen. Good. I mean, well it's, it's just, we live in a weird time, man. We, we do. Didn't. Trigger Let's warnings. Ha- what the right. hell is a trigger warning? <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, it's just, when, I it just is don't weird know times. when the world became so sensitive. Like, like comedians can't tell jokes no more. No. Like, everybody's offended. It's a joke. It's right. a comedian. <laughs> right. It's a joke. You're not supposed to take it serious. It's a joke. Right. His literal job is to joke. About want, everyone. About everyone right. and everything. <laughs> and people want to get offended and like, don't say that. That's that's triggering. Oh, my God. You know what? Yeah. Sit in your house by yourself. <laughs> exactly. It, just, it, it annoys me. It annoys I mean, anything can trigger. Okay. So there you go. There's cut one for you. Neo sitting down for an interview with Gloria Velez. A quick word before I talk about what they were just saying, what I agree with and what I would encourage people who are saying these kinds of things to go and study out and look for yourself. Think about these things more in depth. A quick word about Ian Miles Chung and his tweet with regards to the whole trigger warning business. And I quote the tweet, 
Neo blasts parents who let their children believe that they can pick whatever gender they want to be. Now, just wait. Just, just wait a second. Why are we doing it on this side too? Why are we reaching for hyperbolic language to describe disagreement? The cancel culture, politically correct, cultural Marxist folks want to put trigger warnings on everything that might jeopardize their progressive worldview, the progressive social imaginary. But conservatives, too, are playing a dangerous game. They're playing with fire when they say, Ben Shapiro destroys fill-in-the-blank person or idea or ideology. Ian Miles Chung, with respect, I'm sure this was unconscious and it just is how we are talking these days, but you say Neo blasts parents. No, he didn't blast parents. He criticized them. Appropriately, also. I mean, they deserve to be criticized because what they're doing is wrong and foolish, but he didn't blast them. Blasting would be like if you pulled out a gun and you literally shot those parents. Nobody's getting blasted here. They're being criticized. Their thinking on this is being scrutinized. The claims of the gender theorists are being cross-examined. Not as robustly as they need to be, but nevertheless, the rhetoric here is out of proportion, but this is also, that is to say, a problem for the folks who are opposed to these things. The kind of language that we reach for is not the appropriate language. If we want there to be less selfish hypersensitivity to being disagreed with, we're going to have to come up with better ways to describe our cross-examination, our critical thinking exercises, our debates, our discussions. But that said, going back to some of what Neo and Gloria Velez had to say there, there's no reference to, here's what God says. It's when I was a kid, when I was growing up, this is the way that it was. That's not the right kind of argument to make here. With respect, your conclusion is correct, but you're not making the right kind of argument here. And also you're not understanding. And he even says, I don't understand it. I don't understand why California might take children away from parents who refuse to transition their children if their children come home from school. And oh, by the way, Therein lies the problem. You're sending your kids off to be indoctrinated, to be discipled by the godless. And you shouldn't be surprised when your children come home from a class on gender theory with their heads full of gender theory. You shouldn't be surprised if your kids are camped out in front of a TV or a computer screen all day or a smartphone all day. You shouldn't be surprised when your kids come away from all of those influences, concluding that what was expressed to them, what they were taught is correct. And this is why we homeschool. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we homeschool. If you don't want your children being brainwashed into godlessness and gender theory and critical race theory, if you don't want them being brainwashed into being social justice warriors and at the end of the road, communists, stop sending your children to the people who are going to brainwash your children into those things. It's actually not all that complicated, but then that puts us on the horns of a dilemma. If we ourselves have been very selfish and very ignorant about these things, and we ourselves were given a neutered view of the parents' role in the lives of their children from generations of compulsory government schooling based on the Prussian model, if you're not willing to pull your kids out, then 
you should probably just resign yourself and your children to whatever the social engineers are going to come up with next, whatever the educrats are going to come up with next, whatever the godless are going to demand of you in their game of Simon Says next. Searching gears, though, let's talk about another way that our society is being re-engineered, and I'll help you to understand some of why the compulsory schooling of the progressives was allowed to entrench itself in the U.S. once upon a time. But you'll have to listen carefully. As I go, don't miss how this relates, please. Bruce Finley over at the Denver Post has a piece up on their main page. It's the top headline at the Denver Post right now. Published August 6th, 6 a.m. Updated August 6th, 8.43 a.m. Colorado peaches still ripe for picking, but joys of eating local may vanish. United States increasingly dependent for food, relying on foreign workers and imports. So here we have a story about the economy, which you might think bears little to no relationship to schooling. And this is a wrong way to separate these things out. Yes, they're distinct, but they're not wholly unconcerned with one another, as I'll explain. Bruce Finley starts off his piece as follows. Producing the bright gold peaches long celebrated as Colorado's most succulent crop increasingly requires imported workers such as Jose Diaz of Mexico, eyes gazing intently above a red, white, and blue bandana for protection against the dust. Diaz brings precision for pruning, savvy for selecting fruits at just the right softness, delicacy, in twisting each stem ever so slightly as if the peaches were eggs and the drive to endure 105 degree temperatures. Quote, you have to get used to the heat, end quote. Diaz, 20, said recently during a steamy 11-hour shift, the youngest on a crew of 65 workers from Mexico who launched this year's harvest. They work largely out of sight in a hazy yellow glow, traipsing through rows upon rows of thickly leafed peach trees, only their scuffed boots visible from outside the orchard. Their easy banter in Spanish, the language of agriculture in the United States, reverberates. They sip from crinkly back pocket bottles of water. Smartphones switched on like radios serenade them with music from home, corridos, cumbias, banda. U.S. workers no longer can hack it, Talbot's Mountain Gold manager, Bruce Talbot, said in his headquarters nearby, recalling one hire who, when told he had to pick the peaches above his head height by climbing up ladders demanded extra pay for that task. Two days later, he quit. Quote, the heat melts them, end quote, Talbot said. Without these foreign workers, we do not function, end quote. Now, I'll just pause right there. It's a longer article than I'm going to take the time to read for you in this podcast episode. But of course, as always, the link will be in the description for this episode. So you can go and read the full thing. But from the jump, several insinuations are presented to us. One, Americans are too soft to pick peaches in the hot sun. Also, this is not easy work. I mean, it requires savvy. It requires precision. And only Mexicans have that savvy and that precision. Only Mexicans are hardy enough to pick fruit in the hot sun. Really? Really? Hmm. How did that come to be? That... Americans are not able to pick fruit. <laughs> Do you mean to tell me 
that in a country where a century of compulsory schooling on the progressive model has produced generations of Americans who actually, oh, by the way, relative 1870, when the U.S. Department of Education was very first formed and started keeping stats, we actually have 10% worse literacy in this country, according to the latest stats I got when Googling and asking ChatGPT, the government's own stats say 22% of Americans are lacking in proficiency with regards to literacy. But you mean to tell me that a century of compulsory schooling, the progressives on the Prussian model getting 90 plus percent of our kids, Americans have lost the ability to pick fruit. Is that what you're telling me? Is that what you're telling me? You would think that this is some kind of genetic determinism thing. Mexicans are born with the right genetic information. They're born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe he's born with it, that he can pick peaches in the hot sun. No, actually what it is, is that the progressives in their social engineering schemes presented compulsory schooling as a solution to the problem of integration of immigrants coming to the U.S. a century ago. That was the claim. The claim was all of these people are coming from all over the world to the United States, and they are not necessarily learning English, how to read and write and speak in English fluently, and they're not necessarily learning how to be good citizens, according to us. And so we'll take them, right? We'll require that these immigrant families send their kids to us for teaching of English, but then when we teach them English, we'll also teach them how to be progressives. And that means increasingly we'll teach them to be godless. But then Americans, we want to have doing the managerial type work, the white collar stuff. But then that's even shifted as time has gone on and more Americans, multi-generational Americans, we've been here for a while, say, hey, listen, we're not okay with what you're teaching our kids and what you're not teaching our kids. Increasingly, as academic performance has gone down, the same social engineers, the same wealthy, affluent captains of industry and their heirs have said, you know what, let's also import very smart people because we don't make enough smart people. Apparently, we don't make enough people who are capable of picking fruit on a hot day. And we also don't make enough people who are smart enough to be doctors and lawyers and scientists. And so let's import the very, very smart people as well. And we'll put them at the front of the line through DEI initiatives. We'll excuse racial prejudice towards people of color and religious minorities and sexual minorities. We'll excuse discriminating against straight white American men, Christian men, because this is diversity, equity, inclusivity. But what this article is supposed to get you to be thinking is if we stop illegal immigration, we're all going to starve to death, or at least we won't have delicious, delicious peaches. What you should be thinking to yourself is, hey, wait a second, wait a second. How is it that when our public schools get 90 plus percent of the children for generations, and they're not teaching those kids to be durable enough to pick fruit in the summer or whenever the fruit is ripe, I suppose. If the schools are not 
producing children who have a good work ethic to do that kind of work. And also the schools are not producing children who are going to be able to take on the more technical type jobs. What exactly are the schools doing? (laughs) Well, what they're doing now increasingly is giving up on the teaching of reading, writing, and math to teach the rules of grammar and spelling and punctuation. That has been labeled racist by many publicly in recent years. Many leftist activists in the educational system have said that's racist. And they've also said it's racist to teach math. Math itself is racist. Why is that? Because you're implying two plus two equals four. What if this or that person from another culture or from a different ethnic background, what if in their family, math is not that high of a priority and so they didn't learn math and now you're going to say they're either successful or they're not based on a straight white European (laughs) value being placed on math? And again, again, this is why we homeschool. I look at this and I think my sons would absolutely go and pick fruit. If you're going to pay a decent wage, but then therein lies actually the reason. The reason is not just that Americans are not up for it, but that the Americans are wanting more pay than farmers have to pay. So the Democrats, they pass these minimum wage laws, which make it more difficult for anybody who would be operating by the books according to the law, to hire inexperienced young, let's say, for instance, American boys, American young men. But then all of that is just whatever if you're hiring illegal immigrants. Now you're a hero if you pay them under the table whatever they're willing to accept. That's what this is really about. It's the Democrats having created a new system of slavery. It's right back to the exploitation of the antebellum South with regards to black Africans. Only now it's illegal immigrants. You see how that works? And yet this is the corporate news media spinning it all because he who pays the piper calls the tune. I also resent not Hispanic Americans working in agriculture in the U.S. I don't have any problem with that at all. You want to provide for your family. You want to have your family in a place where it's going to be more politically stable, safer for you to raise them, I am with you, right? And if that's what you're going to work for and work towards, let's work together, right? Let's absolutely be on the same team and let's do that because that's what I want. If that's what you want, that's what I want. Let's work on it together. But I resent the insinuation, the claim that Spanish is the language of agriculture in the US. The people writing this crap apparently don't come from a background of agriculture and they're not familiar with agriculture in much of the U.S. I'm the son of a farmer, grandson, great-grandson, so on and so forth, as far back as I know of farmers. Eastern Montana, I don't remember us hiring Spanish-speaking workers to pick the wheat and the barley and the alfalfa. I don't recall that. Maybe some up north are hiring Spanish-speaking illegal immigrants to come up from down south and do the farm work. Maybe. But I resent this being implied as an existential crisis. If we suddenly have a food shortage, it's because the Republicans got control of the border 
and put a stop to illegal immigration. I resent that. And oh, by the way, that actually makes this country less safe for the breadwinner, Hispanic man who just wants to be able to provide and protect in relation to his family. The policies of the Democrats are going to make this country a place where you can't do that, where they would take your children and against your wishes, against your will, transition your boy to a girl, transition your girl to a boy, teach them to be homosexuals and transgendered, and you would get no grandchildren if these people had their way. And oh, by the way, what's not mentioned here? Anything to do with automation? Not yet. Maybe further on down below. Somebody go check it out. Report back what you find. But I don't see any mention of automation making up for illegal immigrants not doing the picking. Aren't we being told that automation is going to displace so many hundreds and hundreds of millions of workers around the world? Why not with regards to these kinds of tasks? If we're going to run out of people to pick the food, and oh, by the way, too, if people really want those peaches, maybe they should go out and pick them themselves. He who does not work shall not eat. If the wealthy folk in the U.S., who want their peaches, maybe they should go pick their damn peaches instead of demanding open borders when, oh, by the way, that's not even their real reason for wanting open borders. They want open borders because they want a one world government with themselves at the very top. When they think of themselves as global citizens, that basically is to say they think of themselves as citizens of nowhere because there is no world state. But what you do have is a lot of wealthy people who sign deals without respect for the culture they come from, the people that they were born into, the country that they got their start in. They make deals with one another and they want a moral framework that will continue to sanction that. And in the US, the more you pit Americans against one another over whether it's compassionate or wise to control our border with Mexico, the more you pit Americans against one another, what are we not doing? We're not keeping an eye on the global citizens and whether they are fleecing our country, whether they are selling our country out, whether they're setting our country up for failure, all the while they have golden parachutes. Go figure. For our last story this episode, however, I would draw your attention to Dave Urbanski over at The Blaze in a piece from Saturday. August 5th, mega-rich leftist Joy Behar actually says economy is booming. People are having an easier time putting bread on the table in defense of Biden. You'll have to hear it for yourself to believe it. Here it is, cut two. Take a listen. Joy Behar on The View, what she has to say about Bidenomics. Joe Biden, let me just say something about Joe Biden. According to what I'm observing, the economy is booming. Inflation is down. The stock market is doing well. uh, People are having an easier time putting bread on the table, etc. He doesn't seem to be getting the credit for that. Only 41% approval. Is it because they think he's old? Because I don't see anything else they can point to with with him particularly. Well, it's a question for Democrats. But I think well, no, it's a question for you, really, because what? you said you would not well, vote. Well, she's not for voting. No, I'm not. No, but you said you would not vote. Vo- vo- vote one vote. Um, 
I, I Every was, vote I'm not, counts, and your vote counts, and I'm going to tell you again, but I know you don't want to hear it. Why, Dem why is your candidate Why is your candidate not doing better with Democrats? That's who he needs but, to win. But yeah. and moderate because they think voters. he's old. That's why. No, oh, that you're Trump, because Trump because is old. Oh, listen, but he's Democrats. Not, listen, you I am the same age as Joe Biden is not doing poorly because I won't vote for Joe Biden. Let me just make that abundantly clear. You have to at one point. You know, you guys, and I just oh, it's chaos. Okay, so, <laughs> yes, it was chaos. I actually agreed with Joy Behar at the very last there. Yes, that was chaos. <laughs> Everybody talking at once. But then that's where we're at. That's where we are at politically and culturally these days. Everybody just talking at once, not quick to listen, not slow to speak, not slow to become angry. And so it's just a free-for-all. It's just a brawl. Joy Behar says, from everything I'm seeing, the economy is doing better. It's it's doing great, guys. It's doing really good. Why are people not appreciating it? It must be because he's old, but he's the same age as I am. And so I'm old. And so there you have it, right? What this is really about apparently is the baby boomers maybe wanting one last hurrah. The baby boomer Democrats in particular not being willing to accept that they are going to be too old to do all that they have been doing for decades, aborting more of their own children than any generation, arguably in world history, but certainly at least in American history, the baby boomer generation was the serial monogamy, free love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll generation. The baby boomer generation was the peak of test scores and literacy. And it's been downhill ever since they peaked. Why? Because their children after them, so many of them were either aborted or they were latchkey kids growing up in broken homes or overprotected in the 90s and the early 2000s before their future was entirely sold down the river. Why? So that the baby boomers' pet projects could be funded or bailed out when they failed so that this country would keep them entertained and comfortable for a little bit longer. Joy Behar is indicative of a baby boomer woman, loud, full of opinions, and she doesn't listen. Not listening. She asks questions she does not want answers to. They are gotcha questions of the younger woman at the table. And notice the younger woman at the table says, listen, Joe Biden's not doing poorly because I'm not going to vote for him. <laughs> Let's just be clear. Let's just make sure we understand the cause and effect relationship here. I'm not going to vote for him because he has been doing very poorly, because his policies are bad, his ideas are bad, because his character is bad. I'm not going to vote for him because he's already doing a bad job. He's not doing a bad job because I'm saying I'm not going to vote for him. But that's just the way that these people think. They think backwards and upside down and inside out if their natural senses will be pleasured and satisfied and comforted as they are unable to be satisfied anymore and their consciences are seared from decades of bad behavior, selfishness. God has given them over to a reprobate mind, which is to say they're incapable of being reasonable. We need to learn the lesson and be reasonable and be capable of being reasoned with and have a better discourse. 
that actually does honor the other person, that actually does listen to what the other person has to say, but that also calls things by their names, correctly labeling and identifying what God has already declared, agreeing with God. The conservative mind from Burke to Eliot by Russell Kirk would give us some language for this. Our choice is either to ratify the laws of God or to repeal them. Those are the choices. Those have always been the choices. If we ratify them, then righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. I agree with Ben Shapiro. I don't think he demolished or destroyed or annihilated or obliterated or blasted anybody when he said this. I think he just called it by its name when he said, It would be more correct to call the progressives transgressives these days because they're actually not for human progress anymore. They've given up on that. Their view of liberation, self-actualization, is transgressive. Call them the transgressives. What we see in debate after debate, contention after contention, scandal after scandal, so-called faux scandals and pseudo-scandals, What we see again and again with cancel culture and political correctness is you will affirm transgression. That is to say, you will affirm sin. And if you won't, then we'll do worse to you than we would have done to them. If you speak out in defense of the innocent, those who are being led away to the slaughter, if you speak up on their behalf to say it's wrong what's being done to them, we'll come for you next. But again, there's no reasoning with those kinds of people. If the goal is to liberate themselves from the laws of God, and if their yardstick for determining whether this is all working out is their own checking account, their own savings account, their own 401k, their own contract pay rate, six or seven figures, low cost of living, at a certain point, they start to say, let them eat cake. And I think that's rather what Joy Behar and these other media personalities are saying. A lot of these folks who've been on our TV screens for decades, we've thought were these independent-minded, savvy people. Their lines are scripted. What they're allowed to say is clearly spelled out for them on the front end. And if anybody steps out of line, goes off script, they're canned. No matter how popular they are, they're canned. Why? Because this isn't about programming television shows. It's about programming you and me. As long as they're comfortable, things are going great. What are you talking about? Some of the commentary, by the way, in response, when Real Clear Politics ran a piece on that segment I just played the audio for you from, some of the commentary on it is as follows. And I quote, well, 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 Joy Behar's let them eat cake moment. Bread on the table is probably all the average folks can afford these days. Here's another quote. Must be nice to be a dried up communist, raking in seven figures for doing nothing but spewing lies, propaganda, and censorship on behalf of the Democrat Party's communist dictatorship. Here's another quote. This woman is a joke. I'm retired and on a budget. The price of gas has doubled in the past three years at my gas station. My grocery bill is 25% higher and the cost of other services is at a minimum 20% higher. And she thinks I'm having an easier time putting bread on the table. This is a prime example of Democrat thought. The problem is it is not true. Lastly, one more quote from Dave Verbansky's post at The Blaze. Was this recorded in early 2020? 
It certainly bears no resemblance to the Zidens regime record on the economy, end quote. Here you have a combining of Biden's last name with Xi Jinping. You get Zidens. Again, as with the Neo interview with Gloria Velez, the Ian Miles Cheung tweet of that, we need better ways of talking about these things. We need to elevate our rhetoric. If we're going to accurately call things by their names and describe them, more is needed of substance and we need to be disciplined. And when I say disciplined, I don't mean flatter anybody. I don't mean hold back from a appropriate corrective and rebuke. Call spades spades. This is propaganda. It is. Joy Behar's performance on The View. Even the chaos is supposed to create a negative association with objecting to the economic conditions right now that we're all experiencing, we're all suffering from, except those of us who are benefiting from the spoil system. Even that chaos is supposed to create a negative association so that you won't speak up, you won't express, say, for instance, for example, if you're in my shoes, that you're making 27% more than you were four years ago. And you just sold several of your guns to try and generate some cash so that your kids can go and play football at the local Christian school this fall. Create a negative association with the chaos of this kind of rhetoric so that a husband and father of eight with a ninth on the way can't be heard, won't dare to speak up when he says he's about to declare bankruptcy because of the policies of the Democrats, because of how they have constricted supply here and they have manipulated demand there. This is not no big deal and it's not irrelevant to our Christian faith. This is a consequence. This is, speaking of fruit, this is the kind of fruit that gets picked or it withers on the vine when for generations we make the kinds of unwise, ungodly choices that we've been making with regards to our relationship to God and his word. Now go back to Joshua 3, and this will be my final comment, and then I've got to run. Verse 7 of Joshua chapter 3. Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said, verse 9, to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. Now notice, right? Notice here, Joshua is told by God, today I will begin to exalt you which is to say God is going to himself raise up Joshua in the estimations of Israel. Why? So that they know, and I quote, that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Command. And then what does Joshua say? Come here. So there's a command. (laughs) Off to a good start. Short, sharp, simple. Come here and listen to the words of who? To the words of Yahweh your God. Come here and listen. Come here and listen to the words of Yahweh, your God. We've gotten away from that. If there would be a hope for us, if there would be a good future for us, if there would be life for us, we need to get back to come here and listen 
to the words of Yahweh your God. And whatever God will do, we know he will make his name great. We know that he will fulfill his promises. He will accomplish his purposes. His character has not changed his purposes. The character of them is impossible to change. We need to know this. We need to meditate on it. We need to express ourselves like this. We need to act like this. We need to teach our children to express themselves like this. We need to teach our children to act like this. If we will, it will go well for us. If we won't, our end is destruction. It's as simple as that. It really is as simple as that. Stop being superstitious from a place of fear of man, what man might say of you. Start being more concerned with the fear of God, love for God, obedience to God. But as I said, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.